Well, good morning on this holiday weekend. Good to see you all. I feel like a walking billboard. <laughs> so we do need some more volunteers, as Marie uh, made clear. Uh, I'm sure there's jobs for everybody, even if it's just uh, walking around, because part of what we're looking at in this picnic time is to increase connections between the families in our nursery school, particularly those families that don't know the Lord, uh, and the congregation of Grace Bible Church. Those people need to get to know you, but they can't get to know you if you're sitting at home, right? So, uh, and they got, I even volunteered to wear some kind of getup. I don't even know what it is. But if I can do that, if I can do that, you can sign up and come and share in the festivities. So, all right, today we are looking at uh, what I think is probably a pretty well-known text from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20, where the, the theme that we're picking up here is being strong in the Lord. <clears throat> the... Uh, the last time I spoke, which before the baptism was back early August, we talked a bit about power. And that's really what I want to think with you further about today, because I think it's, it's just such an important and contemporary issue, right? So here is a passage about power. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. To stand firm then with the belt of truth tucked around your waist, <clears throat> with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. All right, <clears throat> power, mighty power. 
This is the power that belongs to the Lord, particularly the Lord as risen and exalted. Remember the conclusion of Matthew's gospel as Jesus, the risen Jesus, speaks to his disciples and he says, all authority has been given unto me. All authority. There is something that takes place in the death and the resurrection of Jesus that installs him in a place of power that he did not have before the resurrection. And exactly how we want to express that or try to understand it, <clears throat> that, that does appear to be the clear teaching of Scripture. The resurrected Lord has been instated as the all-powerful Son. All has been given to Him in heaven and on earth. And now that authority speaks to the disciples when he says to them, therefore, because I have this authority, you go as my ambassadors, as my messengers. And then, uh, and then there's that interlude, you know, between his resurrection and his ascension, that 40 days when he speaks with his disciples on various occasions. And Luke picks that up in the beginning of Acts. Jesus appeared to his disciples, and they want to know, what's the program? Is the kingdom coming now in its fullness? And he says, well, that's not, that's not your business to worry about. But what you need to do is remain in Jerusalem because in a few days, you know, he, he spends 40 days and then ascends to his father, and they wait 10 more days, and on the day of Pentecost, what happens? Well, the Holy Spirit comes, right? <clears throat> and he tells them that they're to wait in Jerusalem. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. <clears throat> and Acts chapter 2, we, uh, we see that great event of Pentecost with the rushing wind and the flames of fire and uh, the disciples speaking in tongues and so forth. So the power has come from the exalted Lord to the disciples. Well, that's, that's clear enough. But remember, the last time we talked about this, we said it's important to think about power in a biblical, in a gospel way. And the distinction we made was between power over and power under. I want to come back to that because I just think it's, it's very critical for us. Disciples receive power through the gift of the Holy Spirit poured out by the Son who's now exalted to the right hand of the Father. But what kind of power is it? So we distinguish power over and power under. Power over is the power by which I can or we can, depending what the group is, but it's the power to compel other people to do what we want. Fair enough? That makes sense? That can be uh, military power, right? I've, 
I've got bigger guns and bigger bombs than you do, so you're going to do what I say, and if not, I'm going to bomb you to smithereens, and you will eventually have to acknowledge my power. Or it's political power, where we harness the authority of government and law to compel other people. That's power over. Or it may be economic power. You work for me, you'll do what I say, or you won't get paid. Or think about how it works among nations, right? So, say, a nation rich and powerful economically might do trade with a, an impoverished nation, and uh, they may say, well, here's, this nation has very cheap labor, so we will do this agreement, we'll buy your coffee or your bananas, but here's what we want to get paid, or that's, rather, here's what we want to pay. Well, and so the weaker nation economically says, well, that's hardly fair to us. What does the big nation say? Tough turkeys. Right? We can take our business elsewhere. Well, there's economic power over. So we, we understand that. We understand how that functions. It even functions in churches. I mean, if, you, if you're tracking church news over the last five to ten years, you know that the abuse of power in our churches is at epidemic proportions, where leaders are abusing power. It may be the authoritarian exercise of power. It may be sexual abuse. And there's an epidemic of it. Power over. <clears throat> and then there's this idea of power under, which nowhere in the history of our sad race has been demonstrated any better or, or more effectively than the man from Nazareth. And this uh, event depicted in the sculpture is just one of all kinds of occasions in the Gospels, right, where, where this power under is seen. And eventually, it culminates at the cross. Everything is leading up to the cross, and it's, it's the greatest illustration the world has ever seen of power under. Pilate, don't you know that I have the power to crucify you? Power over. The response? You'd have no power at all except what my Father gives to you. 
and he, he goes the way of the cross. And what happens? Well, what happens is exactly what he predicted a week before in John's Gospel, chapter 12. The hour has come that the ruler of this world will be cast out. How? By death. His death. Power over, power under. Now, what, what we saw the last time, and, and I want to rehearse this, and I, I know some people turn off to history, but folks, if we don't understand a little bit of the history of the Christian church, we are bound <laughs> to fall into holes all over the place. So remember our last time, we talked about Christendom. Kingdom versus Christendom. What, what is Christendom? Christendom is that alliance between church and state. It's that sphere in which Christianity rules. But it rules with the state. And how does the state function? The state functions always as power over. Now, this, this was not, I think, all that much of a temptation for the early Christians, say, from the time of Jesus up until the 4th century because they were, their, their religion was illegal in the empire. And so they were subject to, to periodic persecution. They weren't recognized they could be seized by the authorities. And it was very clear that if the church was to have any power, and by the way, they had power, because Christianity was running across the empire. But the power they had was power under. It was the power of what I call suffering love. You understand what that looks like, right? Right? Some of you here actually lived in the 20th century, as I did. Well, the second half of the 20th century, we saw one of the great explosions of Christianity. Where? In China. After the missionaries had been kicked out. After communism took over. After political protection was taken away from Christianity, the church blossomed. This is what the ancient church father Tertullian around 200 spoke of. You've heard that phrase, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So we've seen it in our day, power under. But, but what happens is that the power under is so effective that more and more people across the empire are becoming Christian and finally, you get the emperor, Constantine, in the beginning of the 4th century, 312, Constantine decides to become a Christian. Yay! Good! 
And, and there's all kinds of scholarly debates about how sincere his Christianity was. We don't have to solve that problem. The fact is, he turned toward the Christian faith. In one way or another, he read the tea leaves. He saw the way, he saw the way ancient pagan religions were losing steam in the empire, and he saw this fresh new expression of religion. And whether genuinely or whatever, we don't have to solve it, but he professes Christian faith. Notice what has now happened. The most powerful power over guy in the world has become a Christian, a follower of the greatest power under leader in the world. Whoa! Something's got to give here, friends. What's it going to be? Not only does Constantine combine these, but now the church under Constantine begins to experience various blessings. Huh? They're no longer illegals in the empire. The emperor is not going to persecute them now. In fact, he's so favorable, money, money is going to start flowing toward the churches. Influence, authority, power over. Because money tends to be power over, doesn't it? All right, so that's what's happening. And what it leads to, I'm calling here the confusion of Christendom. A new place of power. And now Christians have to decide how they're going to operate. Are they going to operate with power under? Are they going to operate with power over? And unfortunately, in Christendom, again and again it seems, what happens is that old temptation. Remember the temptation from Luke chapter 4? All these kingdoms I will give you. They've been given to me. I'll give them to you. All you have to do is worship me, the source of power in this world. Jesus rejects that right up to the end. But now the church in Christendom gets faced with the same temptation that Jesus faced. What are you going to choose, church? You can have power over, you can have power under. Unfortunately, what we see historically is that many times, and I don't want to say that the church in that Christendom relationship, connection between church and state, that they never did any good thing. That, that wouldn't be fair. But the danger is that when you have access to power over, you very quickly start using it in ways that are not helpful. So we mentioned the Crusades. See, how do, you, how do you deal with Islam? Do you bear witness through words? Or do you raise armies and send them off to defend Jerusalem and other parts of Europe? Which do? Power over, power under. The church in the Middle Ages chose power over. Let's raise the armies 
disastrous. What do you do with false teaching? Heresy. Do you teach God's truth? Do you pray? Do you warn? Ah, but if you have access to power over, how about the Inquisition? How about torture to get people to recant? How about burning and other forms of excruciating death to suppress false teaching? That's what they did. You say, well, I'm sure things got better in the Reformation. You know, 16th century, there was this return to Scripture, return to the gospel, so they probably sorted this out. Why do you think that? So the Lutherans and the Calvinists raised their own armies and went to battle against the Catholics. You have the Thirty Years' War that devastated Europe. Now, there were some people along the way who saw some of the problems with, with that Christendom confusion. There was a group in the early Reformation called the Anabaptists. They later had a, a leader named Menno Simons who gave his name to the movement, right? The Mennonites. Just like the Lutherans took their name from their leader and the Calvinists from, from their leader. The, uh, the Anabaptists said, this union of church and state is a problem. And what they cultivated was power under. With, with great power, in many ways, and with extraordinary suffering, because power under is the power of suffering love, and they, and they suffered. Because not just the Catholics, but the Lutherans and the Calvinists said, uh, we don't want these people around. So some were exiled, others were burned, others were drowned. By, by other Christians, you get that, right? What's, what's the problem? I think it's the confusion of the kind of power that we have access to or that we choose to embrace. Okay, so history lesson almost over. But, but, think about what has happened in America in the last 50 years, my friends. You go back to the 1970s at least, or earlier. What took the evangelical church by storm? Jerry Falwell and the moral majority. What was that about? It was about accessing political power. And what Jerry started, 
His course continued on beyond his death because it got, it got evangelicals increasingly focused on power of a political sort. And that continues right up to the present. And political power is power over. The power to compel other people to do what we think they ought to do. When Donald Trump, in 2016, when he campaigned, of course he focused particularly on Christians and particularly on evangelicals with great success. But part of what he said to Christians was, if I am elected, Christians will have power. And it was not power under. Power over. And I'm afraid, my friends, that the evangelical church, the church that I love, that I've grown up in, that I've given my life to serve, I fear that the evangelical church, not exclusively, but in large part, has become guilty of an idolatry of power. Not biblical power, not the kind that Paul talks about, not the kind that is illustrated in the life of Jesus, but power over. And I think we are paying a desperate price for that. Here's the mighty power that Paul's talking about, friends. It's the power of suffering love. It's the power of cross and resurrection. So Paul says, I want you to access the mighty power of God and and to engage the battle. The battle, he says, is not with flesh and blood. Other, Other people are not the real problem. But there is a battle. Even though Jesus has been raised from the dead, has received all authority, the old hymn gets it right. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be won. But earth and heaven will not be won until the Lord's Prayer finds its fulfillment. Your will be done on earth as it's done in heaven. That's when the battle is won. And even though Jesus is victorious and has decisively cast out Satan, uh, Satan is still fighting what you might call a rear guard battle. And he does it with great effectiveness. So Paul says, our battle is not with flesh and blood, that is with other human beings, our Our battle is against Satan and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Satan in Scripture doesn't operate alone. He operates 
with allies. And there's a, a number of terms that Paul uses. Uh, scholars aren't clear about how you distinguish them. But he says our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So we can say Satan and his associates. And we have to battle them with wisdom, with discernment. Uh, it's, in some ways, it's more difficult than, than battling with power over against power over, right? That's just a question, who has the most guys and the most powerful bombs? But in dealing with the devil, Paul uses this term, I want you to be able to take your stand against the devil's schemes. And there he's, he's calling us right back to uh, Genesis chapter 3, as he does in, in his letter to the Corinthians, when he says, I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. When the serpent first shows up in Scripture, he shows up as crafty, right? A schemer, deceitful. And Eve is deceived, and it has been the devil's practice ever since to work by deception. <clears throat> you might say by misdirection. You know, if you go to watch an illusionist, they're very, very good. What are they good with? They're good with misdirection. See? You see what I'm doing? But don't look at my other hand. And so the enemy is like that. He is a deceiver. But there is in this battle, Paul says, a victory to be gained. And the victory <clears throat> is being able to stand fast. The victory is to be able to discern the ploys of the enemy and to resist them. And Paul says to do that. You can't just do it in yourself. You have to do it putting on the full armor of God. And then he quotes a, a bunch of phrases from the book of Isaiah, which talk about different aspects of the character of the Messiah. So Isaiah 59, Isaiah chapter 11, <clears throat> where God describes himself or describes the Messiah as, as putting on truth as a breastplate and, uh, and righteousness and same terms that Paul picks up. So it seems to me in part what, what Paul is saying here is, look, you need to stand with the character of Jesus. Remember our baptism service last week? where Paul in, in Galatians chapter 3 says that in baptism we put on the Messiah, we clothe ourselves. 
I think he's really saying something here, just using these phrases from uh, Isaiah that describe what the Messiah is going to be like and how he's going to act. So now, here we are. We're in the battle. It's, it's the same battle that Jesus fought, same temptations. The difference is he has decisively won that big initial skirmish with Satan. He's broken his power. And now in, in our place, we come into the conflict with the old enemy, but we come with Christ himself. We dress ourselves in Christ. We look at his qualities of truthfulness and faithfulness and commitment to the Word of God, and, and that allows us to stand even when the attacks come. Paul is, uh, I love the way he just repeats that again and again. Verse 13, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then, just stand, stand, stand. Maintain your place in the victory that Jesus has already won. And then, with that, pray. And that's where I want to wrap up today. Verse 18, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Be alert. Why? Because the enemy is out there and he's deceptive. Always keep praying for all the Lord's people. We've said that part of what we want to be about as a congregation is learning to pray better. Right? We've talked about mission. By the way, back school bash, that's part of the mission. Okay, So I'm sure you're going to... We're going to have an overwhelming number of people sign up uh, as a result of this. Uh, so mission, transformation, we've talked about that quite a bit over the last year. And prayerfulness, we haven't talked as much about that. And, and I think what we're going to do is transition starting next week and focus on this theme of prayer, which was so important for Paul and for Jesus. And raise that question, how can we individually and as a congregation become stronger in praying because this victory that Paul wants us to have is a victory that is rooted in prayer. The power that we need, friends, is not power over. It's power under. The way of Jesus himself. And his way was a way that was sustained and built upon a life of prayerful conversation and communion with his Father. So I want to think with you about that and think about ways to, we can encourage each other in that. Great to have you with us. Let's pray and uh, our musicians can lead us in a closing song. Lord, we lift our hearts to you today. 
as the risen and exalted Lord who has decisively triumphed over all of our enemies. These spiritual forces of darkness and wickedness in heavenly realms, the deceptive structures and teachings, the whispered lies that we hear in our hearts and in our minds. God, apart from you, apart from your wise spirit working within us, and and apart from our uh, humble and receptive, prayerful attention to your word and to your spirit, we, like Eve, will just get deceived. Lord, we'd like to function with true spiritual power. We'd like to see that in our lives. We'd like to see it in our church and in, in the churches in this area and in the lives of our neighbors. We realize, Lord, that it needs to be your kind of power. That power of suffering love which you offered for us and you call us now to offer to others. Will you help us to make those changes, to see how that applies in our lives? Because we ask it in the name of Jesus, our Lord, and the one who taught us to pray for the coming of the kingdom that your will may be done on earth in Souderton the way it is done in heaven. We pray in his name. Amen.